You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Mike. I want to add my greeting and good morning to all of you. I'm delighted that you're here. I'm delighted to be with you. It is declarative fact that it is the most wonderful time of the year. It's the worst kept secret on staff and in my household that the two greatest months of the year are November and December, and you can keep January through October. Who needs them? For me, it's all about November and December. I love this time of year. It is a time of fellowship, at the time of family, of fun, of food, all of the good things, there are the, the smells, the sounds of the season, but it's also sort of an elongated time where we as a church get to gather and really sort of singularly focus like a laser on the thing that God has done in Christ. We get to really commemorate, celebrate, and contemplate the incarnation where God in Christ redeems man to himself and to one another. That God, the sovereign of the universe, the eternal being, becomes man. And that Jesus is forever bound up in humanity. He has chosen to, for all eternity hence, bind himself up with humanity. And he has always chosen to bind himself with humanity in his plan and his program of redemption. And so, as Mike said, we get to begin this new Advent season with a new series. Now, the observant among you will know that I have sort of a bizarre personal tradition that a new series means a new beard. That's for you, Larry. The chin koozie is gone. I begin a new series. We begin a new beard. It's just how it works around here. And so I'm super excited about this one. We're going to spend the next five Sundays talking about this idea that I think our Bible is showing us. We've got a new series, the title of which is going to be Surprising Grace. Surprising Grace. All through the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is sending a message and Christmas is sort of the exclamation point. We are to be surprised, gobsmacked even, by grace and the lengths that he will go to. He continually surprises us with grace. In fact, what we're going to do for these next five weeks is we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus, his family tree, his lineage, his trajectory, his heritage, and we're going to study five different women. These women who were Gentiles and of questionable character that Matthew wants us to understand is the heritage of the Savior of the world. So I'm going to read right now Matthew chapter 1, just the first chunk of his genealogy, and we're going to see what we can take away from this. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Matthew says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then he does something strange the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you know anything about your Old Testament, the Old Testament is very clear in saying that Abraham predates David 
by about a thousand years. Abraham's about 4,000 years ago. David's about 3,000 years ago. Why does, why does Matthew do this? Because remember, Matthew is writing a gospel for a very specific, particular purpose. He is trying to say that Jesus is the king. That's the thrust. That's the emphasis. That's the message. Jesus is the king. He's writing, Matthew is, to a Jewish audience that is going to instinctively ask the question, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you're saying he's the king, I want to know what kind of stock he comes from. What's his lineage? Who were his parents? Who were their parents? Who were their parents? How far back can you trace it? If you're going to claim kingship, we need to see that his blood is royal. And so Matthew says primarily and principally that Jesus is the son of David, that he is the rightful heir to the rule of God's chosen covenant people, the nation Israel. He is the king and the son of Abraham. He is the recipient, he is the deliverer and the dispenser of all of the blessing that will come because of God's promise to Abraham. It's going to come through this Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He continues in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, the twelve, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is the first woman we're going to study. We're going to look at her today. By Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab, a Canaanite from the oldest city in the world, Jericho, a practitioner of the oldest profession in the world is this Rahab. She's in the lineage of Jesus. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's from the nation of Moabite, the most hated enemy of Israel. The whole nation was the product of incest. The Moabites, because of their enmity with Israel, are banned from the temple for generations and generations and generations and generations, says God. And yet this woman, Ruth, is a part of the lineage of Jesus. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Dude, she doesn't even get a name. Because Matthew wants us to understand how ribald and raunchy and wrong this whole thing is. She doesn't even get named because not only is there adultery here, there's also the killing and murder of an innocent man named Uriah. Yeah, that's the heritage. That's the, the blue-bloodedness of the Messiah King, Lord of Lords, Jesus. These women are recipients of God's grace, and as such, they have to put their faith in God's promises, every single one of them. We're going to see this morning that Tamar, ultimately she trusts that God will provide Messiah through the line of Judah. Tamar has to completely rely that God will provide Messiah. Next week, we'll look at Rahab, and we'll see that ultimately she has to trust that God will provide a conqueror. And she sees God provide a conqueror as Joshua takes over the land that was promised to the nation of Israel. Then we'll look at Ruth, and ultimately she trusts God as a redeemer, one who will buy back and set things straight. And she sees God provide hope through a man named Boaz. And we'll talk about Uriah's wife. We know her as Bathsheba. 
Ultimately, she trusts that God will provide a king, and she sees God provide the ultimate king through the line of David and her son Solomon. And then finally, we'll talk about Mary. Ultimately, she trusts that God will provide the son. The angel announces that she will be the one from whom Messiah is, is born, and she trusts that God will provide that. Now, these stories of each of these women are perhaps somewhat familiar because we've heard them in church a time or two, but they are intended to be absolutely shocking and stunning and surprising in the grand narrative of Scripture. What the Bible is going to tell us is that God's grace goes all the way to the end and the extent of man's depravity and error. And yet, despite all of man's depravity, all of his departure from the path that God intends, God's grace always breaks through and accomplishes his purpose for his people, that is, peace and blessing. And so, this is really going to be our big idea, not just for today, but really for the entire series, and it goes like this. Sin is no match for God's grace. Sin is no match for God's grace. And make no mistake, sin is a humongous deal. From Genesis 3 all the way through to the end of Revelation, we see over and over again, age after age, that sin is the problem. Sin is a humongous issue. And yet, the biggest issue in the world is no match for God's grace. We're also going to see that the moral of all of these stories is that morals don't save a single soul. That's the moral of all these stories. Morals don't save a single soul. It is surprising grace that saves. And so the greatest gift that I can offer this Christmas season is for all of us to just catch a flicker or a glimmer or a glimpse all over again and to be confounded by the fact that you and I have been set free from all of the sin, error, and failure of our lives by the grace of a loving and a sovereign God. So to do that, we're going to start discussing the story of Tamar, who finds herself in the genealogy of Jesus. So if you would please, open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. We're going to tackle the entire chapter. Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to just read and walk through the text and make some comments as I go. And then we'll see why this text is here and how it applies to us here and now. So Genesis chapter 38. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Genesis chapter 38 and verse 1. Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, is writing for a particular purpose to a people in a place. This is not just a bunch of stories that were cobbled together. It is Moses writing, trying to communicate and articulate a specific truth. He writes this. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hirah. Now let me pause and explain what's going on here. Moses is writing the Pentateuch, Torah, to the nation of Israel. He's writing to a group of people who have very recently come up out of Egypt. This group of people has been there for 400 years, 10 generations, and they do not know God. They have been completely assimilated into the theology of Egypt Earlier, God comes to Abram and says, Abram, I'm going to make you, old guy, a father of many nations. And we wait eagerly through the Old Testament unfolding to say, how is that going to happen? Because now we find these people in Egypt of all places. But what we find is that in Egypt, what is actually a punishment turns out to be a provision and a protection. 
Because in Egypt, this people swells from a family of 70 to several million over 400 years. Why? Because they exponentially increase in purity of line. They don't intermarry at all with the Egyptians. Not their choice. The Egyptians despised the Hebrews, were disgusted by them. They were hairy and they kept sheep. Ugh. And the Egyptians were oiled up, wore eyeliner, and had nice, cool jewelry all over the place. The Hebrews were nasty. And so there was no intermarrying, not because of Israel's purity, but because Egypt wouldn't have them. What looked like uh, a judgment was actually a provision. God says, I'm going to keep you down there until you come out as a full-birthed nation, and I will save you. I want you to be my chosen people, a covenant community, so that the rest of the world in the land that I give you knows what righteousness looks like. You are going to look different. You're going to be distinct. I want all of the surrounding peoples to know what I am like by virtue of how you live in righteousness. And for those people who are there that you will displace, if they refuse to bow to my sovereignty, then you will be the tip of the spear, and you, Israel, will be the instrumentality of my judgment against them. He tells them, Abram, you're going to be in Egypt for 400 years while the wickedness of the Amorites ripens. I'm going to remove you from that because I know you, my people, will want to be like them. And so I'm going to take you out while they grow in their strength, and then I'm going to bring you out, and you're going to wipe that unrighteousness off the map. And so Moses sits down, and he writes the story of creation. He writes the story of all that has taken place. He writes the story of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, and now of Joseph. And he begins to tell the story of Joseph in chapter 37. And he'll continue the story of Joseph in chapter 39. But here in chapter 38, we get this strange little interlude an awkward intermission where we have the story of Judah. And it feels like it might not fit. But in actuality, Moses, by the inspiration of God's Spirit, places it perfectly and precisely where it should be. He's going to interrupt the narrative of Joseph to talk about what's happening with Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the sons of Jacob. So again, verse chapter 38, verse 1, at that time, Judah went down from his brothers. Well, at what time? Well, you might remember that Joseph was sort of the snot-nosed favored kid of Jacob, and he dreamed these dreams in which he was above his brothers, even his mother and his father, and his brothers didn't like that a whole lot. And so they made plans to kill him. But Reuben, the oldest brother, says, no, no, let's not kill him because, I mean, he is our broseph and all. We don't want to do that. Let's, uh, let's just throw him in a pit and have lunch, and that'll teach him a lesson. And they throw him in a cistern, and they begin to have snacks while he's screaming out to save him, and they're ignoring him. When finally a, a caravan of merchants, the Midianites, the Ishmaelites, travel by, and it's Judah that says, I got an idea. Why should we just leave him here? Why don't we sell him for a profit, at least get something for our trouble? And so they sell their brother. Judah's idea, they sell their brother to the Midianites, who end up carting Joseph off to Egypt. And it looks like the plan of God is thwarted. It's this Judah. While Joseph is in Egypt, Judah is still hanging around back in his homeland. And he turned aside to a certain Adulamite. Dun, dun, dun. The Adulamites were Canaanites. They were idolaters. They were pagans. They worshipped Chemosh and Molech. They practiced child sacrifice. They were evil, wicked people. But Judah decides this dude's going to be his bestie. Probably not a good idea. 
He's an Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. I'm sure that Hira, the Adulamite, said, hey, I got a lady friend you've got to meet. And Judah's like, I like lady friends. Okay. And he meets this Canaanite woman and marries her. Oh, no, 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 no. Abraham warned strongly in chapter 24. He made his servant Eliezer swear that no progeny of Abraham would ever marry a Canaanite woman. They're the worst. They're idolaters. They will lead astray. They will defile our purity. Do not do it. Then later, Isaac makes sure that Jacob swears he will never take a Canaanite wife because they're icky, they're gross, they're pagan, they're idolatrous, they're not part of God's covenant community. Don't do it. But now here we've got the great-grandson of Abraham, Judah, who just walking around finds himself with a Canaanite buddy, and he takes a Canaanite wife. Ugh. Now, this is supposed to stun us as the reader because later we're going to understand that it is through Judah, not through Reuben, the firstborn, not through Joseph, the prized son. It is going to come through Judah, the deliverer, the Messiah, the ruler of Israel will come through the line of Judah. But here he's taking a Canaanite wife. Oh, no, this is very bad news indeed. Well, the plot thickens. He went into her, he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. Now, this is a grace. Psalms and Proverbs tells us that anytime a child is conceived, that a life is born, it is a grace and a gift of God. Astonishingly, God honors this union, and they, are, they have birth, they give birth to a son, uh, and they name him Ur, which just sort of sounds indecisive, doesn't it? Like, what are we going to name him? Ur, Done! We'll name him Ur. So this is the firstborn. His name is Ur. And she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Wow. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shalach. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. Not one, not two, but three sons. What a gift. You remember, sons were your heritage. That was your health care program. It was your elder care program was having offspring, not just offspring, but sons. And Judah with this Canaanite woman is given three sons. Well, verse six, after some time obviously passes, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, Tamar, which means date palm. She's probably very lovely. And she's probably about 15 years old at this time. In those days, in the ancient Near East, when a young girl passes uh, puberty, uh, she is almost immediately married off. So this girl, Tamar, is probably about 15 years old, and she's a Canaanite. And she's given to Judah's firstborn son named Ur. Now let's remember, Judah is a Jew. In fact, that's where we get the word Jew. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians take off the ten northern tribes. They're destroyed. They're gone. All that's left is the tribe of Judah. And so under the Babylonian captivity, they begin to refer to the Hebrews as Jews. And so this guy, Judah, is Jewish, but he has a Canaanite wife, which means their son, Ur, is half Canaanite, half Jew. Oh, boy, we've got a mix in the bloodline. Messiah supposed to come through this? But then they find a Canaanite wife for this half Canaanite, half Jewish son. So what's going to be produced is like this quarter Jew, three-quarter Canaanite offspring. Oh boy, this is very bad news. How are the promises of God going to continue? Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Okay, 
That's a bad day. I, I'm so glad that God does not operate this way today, or I would have been smoke a long time ago. We don't know what Ur did or was doing. We're not told. Uh, if you really want some advanced exercise, the word wicked that is used here is kind of a unique word that's only used once or twice, and both of those times God responds with violent fury. I don't know exactly what Ur was doing. We're not told, but it elicits God's wrath, and he's taken out. We're not told how. I'd kind of like to think like this rogue meteor just shot through the sky and just vaporized him. That's kind of awesome, but I don't know. We're not told. He just, he dies. Verse 8, then Judas said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now look, a lot of family in here, a lot of uh, young people, so I'm going to be very delicate and brief here. I know it's the holidays. You've got family from out of town that are staying with you. Relax. This is not a prescription, brothers-in-law, daughters-in-law, sons-in-law. Just, just relax. But in those days, in the ancient Near East, it was completely normative and normal to practice what was called leveret marriage. If a man dies and his wife has not had a son with this man, then the man who died, his brother, was culturally obligated to go into her, take her as a wife, and to provide a son for her. Otherwise, she would be left destitute with no heritage, with no one to take care of her in her dotage, and she would essentially be discarded and she would die. That's how the, the society worked. The brother of the deceased had to go into her, and they had to produce offspring, and the offspring would receive all of the inheritance, all of the land rights, all of the household uh, that, his, uh, that the dead man would have ordinarily had. In fact, he would even take on the name of the dead man, even though he would be the son of uh, this other man. Now, this is not formally put into place by Moses until the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy is written, but Moses is telling us that even before it's written down and codified in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, this was the normative, cultural, societal practice. This was God's apparent plan to protect the lines of families in the land. So this man knows this, named Onan. He is supposed to provide offspring for Tamar, whose first husband has died. So verse 9 but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, and he apparently is greedy and, and selfish. And so whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would fail to consummate and uh, as not give offspring to his brother. Now, if you have questions about Genesis 38, I want you to write down Mike at Bethelbible.com. He'll answer all of your questions, explain it to your children. He'll come over. He'll bring snacks. It'll be a great time. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I just want to say, as a quick aside, um, boy... I know this is a dicey passage, but listen, we are commanded in Scripture to teach the full counsel of God, and Scripture says that all Scripture is God-breed, and this is a part of it. So we don't get to, to shy away from, we meet these passages head-on. By the way, this is the same church that preached about the Ethiopian eunuch on uh, Father's Day several years ago, so welcome to Bethel. This is kind of what we do here. I promise no other church in America is preaching Genesis 38 on the first Sunday of Advent, but welcome, we're glad you're here. I'm also going to say that I am so thankful that I am alive in the 21st century in East Texas where the practice of leveret marriage is no longer a thing, okay? I'm thankful for an enormous population with many options and all sorts of different things. So just know this is not prescriptive. This is just Moses telling us what happened back then. Now watch what happens. Verse 9. Verse 10, actually. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. Boy! This is, 
This is very serious. Apparently, Onan was just as wicked as his older brother, was using this woman. He did take her as wife, but he's using her merely for his own physical gratification. He's using, misusing, and abusing this woman, and God takes great umbrage at this. It is sin, period, and something has to die. And so Onan is put to death. Again, we're not told how or what that looks like, just that he's taken out of the picture. Now Judah has lost two sons. Oh boy, what's going to happen to the line of the promised Messiah? It's got to come through Judah. What happens if the whole thing is broken apart? Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. And then Moses gives us some commentary and explains that Judah's motive was not pure for he feared that he would die like his brothers. He feared that, Shema, uh, that Shelah would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Can you imagine the shame, the humiliation, the indignity, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that this young woman has? Now she's been doubly widowed, twice discarded, essentially defiled, and now she's being lied to. Just go back until the third one grows up. Go back to your daddy's house. And so she has to go back in a widow's garb under betrothal and live a completely destitute life. She's probably in her late teens by this point, and the text tells us that Judah is doing what a lot of men do. When confronted with the error of his family, he blame shifts. He tries to manage the sin, and he tries to make it like it must be her fault. Oh, it can't be Ur's fault that he was wicked, and it can't be Onan's fault that he's wicked, and it certainly can't be my fault as their dad. It must be this woman. So I'm just going to put her out on a shelf and take her out of the picture. Oh, boy. Now what's going to happen to the line of Judah? We're meant to ask. We're meant to wonder. Well, the story continues. Verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, this Canaanite woman, died. And when Judah was comforted, it doesn't mean that, you know, he had a bag of Doritos. and was like, oh, well, that's over. I mean, there's a specific time of mourning that he goes through. And when that time of mourning is over, after he is comforted, um, uh, was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hirah the Adulamite. We're told about this guy one more time. Well, what's going on? After the time of mourning is over, Judah says, well, that's over. Let's go. And he grabs his old buddy, the Canaanite, and they go to shear sheep. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but in those days, that's kind of like when the boys go off in the fall to the deer lease. They go off to the hunting camp where they're all by themselves, out in the rugged wild, and they can do pretty much whatever they want. I don't mean you men. I mean men in general. It would never happen here, but sometimes men go off to the hunting camp, to the deer lease, and they just sort of let their hair down. None of you, I'm sure. I'm just saying that's what happened back here. That's what happens when you went to go shear your sheep. It's sort of a, a rugged man time. So he and his buddy, Hira, the Adulamite, go up to do this. And when Tamar was told, verse 13, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments. She hatches a plan. She covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. She now knows for sure that Judah is a liar. He's not a man of upstanding character. 
he is unrighteous and that she has been sitting there waiting for nothing. Now she's probably in her early 20s, which might sound like, well, that's fine. Not in those days. Her clock is ticking. She's almost out of time. And she knows that she's damaged goods and has not received justice owed her. And so she takes matters into her own hands. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, now how does she know that this is going to work? Because apparently she knows Judah well enough that this is not his first time. He is characterized by the time of going to shear the sheep. He stops off at Enaim for a little R&R, if you will. And she knows that he will do this. This is graphic. This is ghastly. The one through whom the Messiah will come is characterized as a Canaanite idolater. He's turning aside to a temple prostitute in hopes that the Canaanite gods will bless his agriculture and his flocks. This is the one through whom Messiah is going to come to bless Israel? It can't get any worse than this until it does. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? Now her face is covered, but she's speaking to him. He doesn't even recognize her voice. He is so single-mindedly focused on sin that he's not walking in wisdom. He is completely submitted to his flesh. Only one thing on his mind. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. <laughs> this, is, this is a little bit awkward. They're negotiating for temple prostitution. And he says, I know, I know, I know. I'll give you a goat. <laughs> and she says, well, I don't. I don't see a goat. He says, oh, well, trust me, I'm good for it. I'll send it to you. She says, what will you give me as a pledge to make sure that you'll send me this goat? Because I'm looking around. I don't see your goat. He answered, I will send you a goat from the flock. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Now, listen, the signet is a little cylinder that hung on the cord around his neck. The signet was what he would stamp in wax, sort of his seal. This is how he did business. The cord was a unique cord specific just to him that he would keep around his neck so that if he has to go find a lost sheep, he can bind that sheep's uh, forepaws. And everyone will know that is Judah's sheep because the cord was unique and distinctive and it was well known by everybody. And the staff was well known. It was his. Everyone knew whose staff that was. It belonged to him. This is like giving over your driver's license, your social security card, and your passport. This is his whole identity. And he's like, mm, here you go. It's amazing how quickly he just hands over everything he has to identify himself. So he gave him to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Even this lewd, awkward, debauched union is a gift. Conception is granted. Then she rose. And went and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Now then, Judah's going to try to cover his tracks. He's going to try to make good. And by the way, he needs to get his driver's license, his passport, and his social security card back. Hard to do business without those things. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite. <laughs> hey, hey, here, I need you to do something for me. I left my wallet at the place. You know the place. Um, I need you to take this goat for me. He's totally not even willing to show back up himself. He's getting his Canaanite buddy, who is also obviously vastly familiar with the process and the procedure. I need you to take this goat and get my stuff back for me, please. 
Judas sent the young goat back by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has ever been here. <gasps> Maybe it was an angel. No, no, that's not what happened. It was a trap. Verse 22, so he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has even been here. And Judah replied, well, well let her keep the things as her own. <laughs> she can keep my wallet. Boy, why would he do that? Or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. This is your fault. You could have made this all right. But you, see how Judah is always blame shifting? By the way, the text is doing something very intentional here. See, Hebrew narrative literature always comes in threes. It's a triplicate. This is now the third time that the family of Jacob will be deceived with a goat. It's not an accident. It's a literary device to let you see how debauched and depraved the people of God are, and yet their sin is no match for God's grace. You might remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob tries to deceive his father Isaac by pretending to be Esau. How does he do it? He puts goat skin on his arms, and Isaac goes, <laughs> you sure do feel like Esau. Yeah, you kind of smell goaty too, and there's a deception with a goat. But then the next generation you remember this story. The brothers pretend that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal, and so they take his coat of many colors, and they sprinkle it with goat's blood. And they take it to Jacob and say, do you recognize this? Is this your son's? And he says, oh, yes, and it's got blood on it. I know that my son is dead. There's a deception with a goat. And now for the third time, the deceiver has birthed the deceiver who has birthed the one who is deceived. One more time, a goat has been involved in the deception of the line of Judah. This is so embarrassing. He doesn't want to be found out, but sin has a way of finding you out. No matter how you and I try to manage it, it always works itself out. Well, the narrative continues. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar's got a baby bump. Kind of what's going on there. Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Literally, she played the harlot. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Some gossip just couldn't wait to spread the bad news. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. This is one of the most shocking, offensive, surprising, gruesome things that he could say. In the Hebrew, he says two words. He simply says, yatzah. Saraf, bring, burn. There is a deep, brutal hatred coming from Judah. The text is intended to, to shock us, like, my goodness. Now, she is betrothed officially and legally to Shelah, and so adultery would be punishable by death, by stoning, which is a very brutal, hard way to die. But burning was reserved for only the most offensive of blasphemers against God. It's a torturous, agonizing, horrifying death. And he says, bring, burn. All of his pent-up rage, he directs at her. All of his failure, all of his falling, all of his own shame and humiliation, he now transfers to her. Some of you know this feeling. We do it with our spouses. The thing we are most ashamed of in ourselves, we yell at our sons even louder. 
the things we are most ashamed of in our, co- in, our, in our workplace, we take it out on our coworkers. The thing I am most aware of in myself, I see it and I sniff it in other people and it makes me furious. Judah knows that he has done a horrible thing. He is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, part of the covenant community of Yahweh, and yet he has serially turned aside to temple prostitutes of the gods of the Canaanites. There's all kinds of shame in him, and he turns this rage. Let me get her out of the way. I will fix this. Burn her. It's really, really frightening. Well, verse 25, as she was being brought out, wait a minute, no trial, no questions for clarification? No. Apparently, whoever this is grabs her and drags her out. Perhaps even her father and brothers, because of the shame, perceive that she has brought upon them. As she's being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are. (laughs) But really, it's just two words from her. He had said, bring and burn. Her response is merely, identify this. Hacker na. He says, bring, burn. She says, identify this. Please identify who these are. The signet and the cord and the staff. This woman is shrewd. Then Judah identified them and said, gulp. She is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. She is more righteous. He's not saying that what Tamar has done was right or good or sinless. It was immoral. It was inappropriate. It was incestuous. It was deceptive. And yet he recognizes in that moment that he is greater of a much worse offense. He did not look after the widow or the orphan, and that stirs God to anger. Where did his first two boys learn that behavior from? Their own father, and he knows that and resents that in himself. She is more righteous. It's a legal pronouncement. He says, she tzadek. She is the winner of this case. She is the righteous one. The text merely says that he did not go unto her again. We don't get the idea that she is now given to Shelah. No, no, no. She is essentially his wife now. Tamar will not produce his grandson. Tamar will produce his son. The line of Judah, the Messiah, will come from this scheming Canaanite woman who tricked her father-in-law. It's about as bad as it gets. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Wow! Double blessing. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, the other brother passed on the outside. It's a great move. The other brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, he who has broken out. Afterward, his brother came out, probably going, What in the world? His brother came out with the scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zerah, the scarlet thread. We are reliving, re-experiencing the birth narrative of Jacob and Esau. The same thing happening again. Why? Why is this text here? It's telling us, despite all of the depravity, despite all of the debauchery, despite all of the fallenness and the human tendency to stray from God's path, God is faithful. God gets it done. No matter what we look at that seems like things are going to go off 
the rails, God is faithful. Judah and his brothers had earlier sold their younger brother Joseph into slavery in an attempt to thwart the promise and the plan of blessing. But God is faithful. He delivers even through the seedy circumstances of our sin. So why is this text here? Why in the world are we covering this at Advent? Well, let me just give you a couple quick implications for us to think about and to process as we go through the Advent season. And I just want to remind us that sin is no match for God's grace. Sin is no match for God's grace, which leads me to three points of implication. Number one, you don't have to sanitize the shepherd's cave. <laughs> it's Advent. You and I do not have to be busy about trying to sanitize the shepherd's cave. Listen, Jesus, the Christ, the son of Mary and adopted by Joseph, was laid not in the Ritz. He was laid in a shepherd's cave and the shepherds had no time to sweep out the sheep droppings. It was foul and smelly in there. I've been to a shepherd's cave. It's low, it's dim, it's small, and it's completely paved with sheep squeezins. And they had no time to clean it before the king of kings and the lord of lords was laid in a feeding trough. And by the way, that's you, shepherd's cave. It is not your job, nor is it your ability to try to clean or sanitize the shepherd's cave. You and I must recognize, we must identify that we are coated in sheep squeezins. And into that reality, the king of kings and the lord of lords seeks to have residence. It's not our job to try to make the surroundings nice and clean so that God will come in. No, we recognize that... Uh, I'm a smoldering mess. Would you come in and make me clean? And the answer is always yes. On the other hand, if you happen to believe that your heart and character and mind are so spotless that God would be lucky to have you on his team, know that it is the humble and the receptive who recognize their need of a Savior that God moves toward. And God loves you so much that he will even move toward making you humble. It's not your job to say, well, when I've got my life all straight and tidy, then I'll have me some Jesus. Nope, he moves into shepherd's caves. Number two, we are never beyond the reach of God's grace. Never. This is good news. There are enough of us in this room that I have to believe that there are stories of heartache and failure and disappointment and dysfunction. Something has almost certainly happened along the way that makes us feel like we're damaged goods or we are somehow out of the flow of God's intended outcome for our lives. Whatever we imagined our lives to be when we were young adolescents has almost certainly not worked out that way. There have been curveballs and distractions all along the way, and we find ourselves going, how did my life come to this? There was so much potential, so much opportunity, but I've made just a huge mess of just about everything. And I want you to know that this text is telling us, that's okay. That's okay. Yes, sin has made a mess, but God is not in crisis. He is faithful. His grace doesn't work like we do. He stands ready to fold us into his joy and purpose, and that he can still work out good in our life. Remember, the moral of this story and all that we will cover at Advent is that morals don't save anybody. In fact, and frankly, immorality does not disqualify anybody. It merely prepares us to receive God's grace. Which leads me to the third point. Do the next wise thing. 
Or as my dad would have said, when you find yourself in a hole from sin, stop digging. Do the next wise thing. We find in all throughout the Old Testament that people find themselves in a cul-de-sac of their own making, and they don't know what to do to get out of it, so they keep doing bad things. But we live on this side of the cross. We have the ability to do the next wise thing. The ultimate stocking stuffer, if you will, in Scripture, comes to us this Advent season from the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Because the coming of Christ, because of his perfect life, because of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and the coming of the Spirit, we, these old, worn-out, dirty socks, have been stuffed with the Spirit of God himself. And now we have the capacity to always do the next wise thing. We will never, because of God's sovereignty, because of his Spirit, find ourselves in a situation in which our only alternative is to sin. Do you understand that? God is so sovereign. When we are indwelled by his spirit, there will always be an opportunity to bring God glory, even though it hurt, even though it be hard. Yes, we find ourselves where we've run out of easy choices to make, but the ultimate stocking stuffer is we will never find ourselves in a position where our only option is to sin. Do the next wise thing. Yes, sometimes it will be hard, but the spirit's leading make things easier to bear. See, sin is no match for God's grace. All of these women that we're going to study this Advent season, starting with Tamar, have something in common. They bound themselves to a man who was a part of God's plan. The women of this story are essentially bound to a different guy, but we see one guy who is the promised vessel through which the Messiah will come. We see one that is going to be the, the promised conqueror, the redeemer, the king, and the son. It reminds me of another Gentile woman who is also bound to a Jewish man. The church, the bride of Christ, comprised primarily of Gentiles, bound to Jesus, the groom, who is told all through the New Testament as the Messiah, as the King, as the Redeemer, as the Son, as the Conqueror. We are bound to Him. In so many ways, I studied this week and realized, oh my goodness. I am Tamar, an outsider who is damaged goods, a schemer by nature, discarded, having experienced disappointment and shame, and yet I've trusted that God sent his Messiah and that his grace has broken out before me. I hacker nah that Jesus is who he said he was. That little pronouncement that Tamar says to Judah recognize this, identify this, is particularly poignant. Because the previous chapter, what we find, actually, I, sorry, the next chapter, the, the subsequent chapter, chapter 39, we find Judah, now in Egypt, before the prime minister of Egypt, whose name is Joseph. And Judah finds himself scheming and developing all these other plans again. And Joseph looks at him, and the text is very careful to show us. Joseph says, Hakar na. Identify this. Do you not recognize? And Judah looks and sees the one who is where he is because of Judah's betrayal of him. 
recognizes that he is responsible and that now he sits in the right hand of authority. And from that moment on, Judah is changed. Judah says, don't keep Benjamin here. Keep me here instead. And Judah's story is my story. Recognizing that there is one who is who he said he was, Jesus. Recognize him. He is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, who is there because of my sin and betrayal. I am complicit in his death, and yet he has used that to be the instrumentality of my salvation. You see, sin, though it be immense, is no match for God's grace. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I invite you to believe, to hacker na, to identify this, to believe, to recognize that Jesus is who he said he was, that he did what he said he came to do, that the scriptures are true, that he is the Messiah, the King, the Redeemer, the Son, the Conqueror. That you would believe that, maybe outside of all reason, understanding, or explanation, that you would believe. And perhaps for the first time this Christmas Advent season, it would all ring true and you could celebrate in sincerity. For the rest of us, I just want to remind you, as we've found ourselves confronted with difficult circumstances, that we are served and loved by a sovereign God, and our sin is no match for his grace, and we walk accordingly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done, that despite all the ways it looks like your promises can and should fail because of our error and disobedience, you are faithful. Your faithfulness is not dependent upon our ability to do what's right. Thank you for showing us yet again that morals never save anyone. That it is your surprising grace. You went even to the depths of this deception by a woman named Tamar, and she became the instrumentality through which your son Jesus would enter the world. Thank you for that story of redemption, all the way to the end and the extent of our error. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, I pray that you will move irresistibly by your spirit through grace and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us all over again this Advent season that you have come and you will come again. And in the meantime, we are to walk by your spirit. Father, we thank you for loving us first. We pray all these things the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thanks so much for being here. I want to remind you to pick up an Advent family devotional out there in the foyer. The uh, guest cards can be dropped off in that plastic folder and offerings in the wooden box or online. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction and we will be dismissed. Now may God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for doing every good work and may you do it. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.